Our reading today is from Romans 9, page 1136, starting at verse 19. One of you will say to me, then why does God still blame us? For who is able to resist his will? But who are you, a human being, to talk back to God? Shall what is formed say to the one who formed it, why did you make me like this? Does not the potter have the right to make out of the same lump of clay some pottery for special purposes and some for common use? What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath, prepared for destruction? What if he did this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy, whom he prepared in advance for glory? Even us, whom he called, not only from the Jews, but also from the Gentiles. As he says in Hosea, I will call them my people, who are not my people. I will call her my loved one, who is not my loved one. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called children of the living God. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. Though the number of Israelites be like the sand by the sea, only the remnant will be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on earth with speed and finality. It is just as Isaiah said previously, unless the Lord had left us descendants, we would have become like Sodom. We would have become like Gomorrah. This is the word of the Lord. This is part of a series we're doing in these chapters, chapters 9 to 11 in Romans. Um, it's our normal practice to work through books of the Bible, normally kind of chapter by chapter. It varies sometimes, but that's normally how we do it. And uh, not to miss bits out, even when they're hard, and even when they're difficult to hear, maybe difficult to understand. And maybe this is one of those passages this morning that we need to engage with and think and pray and work hard at together. So let's, uh, let's do that. And um, you've got the, the green handouts, which has got the uh, sermon headings as we go through on the back. It's also at the bottom, it's got details. We're going to do a Q&A, just recognising that these uh, chapters do, you know, may well provoke questions. If they don't, that's fine. But if they do, um, and you're sitting there thinking, but why, why aren't we thinking about this? What about this? What about that? It's very hard to address absolutely everything as we cover the, the, this, um, these chapters in, in, in preaching. So there will be an opportunity on Sunday the 4th of February when we come to, the, to Romans 11 and we finish this bit that we're doing um, to just have half an hour after the service um, for anybody who'd like to, to ask those questions. But we've got the link now, so as you think of questions even now, you can put them in and they'll still be there, and we'll try and address them when we come to it um, on the, that, that first Sunday in February. So uh, don't hesitate to start putting questions in um, as we go through. Um, if you do it mid-sermon, you might find it gets answered before the sermon's finished. So you could just bear that in mind, but I don't really mind, whatever you want to do. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time, and... Thank you for your word. And thank you that this is a firm foundation for us to build our lives upon, as we've just been singing. So please, would you speak to us, help us as we uh, seek to see what these things mean today for us, what difference they make. 
pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I can't believe in a God who would choose some and not others. I can't believe in a God who would decide from the start who is part of his people for eternity and who isn't. Who is given new life in Christ and who suffers judgment? How can that be fair? How can that be just? That is the very real objection that Paul is addressing in these verses we just heard read. If you were here last week, uh, maybe you came away asking that question. And in one sense, that shouldn't be a surprise because that is the next question. Thing that Paul starts to address. Maybe even as you just heard this being read, you thought, can this, be, can this really be right, what we're hearing here? So verse 22, how can some be prepared for destruction? How can God then prepare others in advance for glory? Verse 23, how can that be something that he chooses? So we talked last week, if you were with us, about what a friend of mine calls the Christian P word. You know, it's the word you're not supposed to say in polite company. The word predestination. The word we might think, well, we'd rather not have to think about this. We'd rather not have to talk about it. But the word that Paul, <coughs> shockingly and surprisingly, uses openly and happily. The word that in uh, chapter 8, Paul thinks <coughs> is a blessing to be celebrated not something to be shamed of or shy away from. So the, this blessing that, that Paul highlights is he thinks it's a blessing because if you're trusting in Jesus, you know you are totally secure, not because of anything you have done, not because of anything you have contributed, but because of what God has done from beginning to end. He's got this. He's got you if you're trusting in Jesus. That's why Paul says predestination is a blessing in chapter 8. But the point then of chapter 9, as we saw last week, is that then raises the question, well, hang on a minute. If you're talking about choosing, what about God's chosen people? What about the Jews? Because surely he chose them, and, and many of them have not put their faith in Jesus. And that for Paul and for us today, as we saw last time, is a source of anguish. And there is this great change of mood between chapter 8 and chapter 9 that we saw. And so Paul then last time began to answer that objection. No, he said, God's word has not failed. God's plan has not changed. We can trust him because this is how God has always done things. He's the God with no plan B. He's a plan A kind of God. He's always been the God who chooses some and not others. So he said, not all descended from Israel are Israel. Not all descendants of Abraham are chosen. And can you see the point of that is to give us confidence. If you're trusting Jesus today, then you know that he has chosen you. And if he has chosen you, then you know he will keep you. But as he raises this idea of God choosing some and not others, that then brings us to this specific question. Verse 19. Why then does God still blame us? For who can resist his will? In other words, 
How can it be fair for God to hold us responsible for our decision to trust Jesus or not trust Jesus if, in fact, he decides in advance whether or not we're going to do that? It's clear from our experience today that we still experience a real choice about following Jesus. That's what we experience in our lives, isn't it? We, 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 we get offered the choice to follow Jesus. But the question is whether we can be really held responsible for that if God has already decided. Do you see? That is what Paul is addressing here. And in response to that, he makes three points in these verses. So we're going to see what those are and what they mean. So first of all, from verses 20 to 21, his answer, first of all, is God is God. God is God. What does that mean? He's being pretty direct here, isn't he? So he's saying, words to this effect, he's saying, stop talking back to God. He's got this image of the potter and the clay. It's a, it's a common image from the Old Testament of God and his people. And let's just be clear with the potter and the clay, which is which? Because in our world today, people might want to say it's the other way round that we're the potters and we somehow make the gods that we want to believe in. But actually the Bible's clear from beginning to end. No, that, that's what's called idolatry, doing that. Because the reality is the potter is God. And we are the creatures that he forms from clay. And he has this absurd picture of a clay pot trying to talk back to the potter. Now, my ceramics career at school was short-lived. So the one time I did ceramics, we were supposed to be making these kind of self-portrait heads out of clay. And I vividly remember, you know, working hard through the lesson, making this self-portrait head and presenting it to my ceramics teacher with this head that I made out of clay and him kind of glaring at me and saying, this is hopeless, D-minus boy. So I don't know whether any of the young people here have experienced teachers like that. I don't think teachers are quite like that anymore, but they certainly were a little bit like that sometimes then. But even with this kind of D-minus head that I had made, the idea of it complaining back to me about its D-minus imperfections is, is kind of absurd, isn't it? And the, and the thing about God, of course, is that he is not some kind of D-minus wannabe potter. He's the creator of the universe. He's the God who also made the stars, we're told in Genesis. The God whose, whose glory the world around us proclaims. The God in whose image we are made. But the point is, because he's the potter, because he's the creator, he owns what he's made. He gets to say what happens with what he has made. And the Bible tells us, actually, sin is where one way or another we refuse to acknowledge that because God made us, he gets to be in charge with us. Not acknowledging that and saying, no, I don't, I don't want to go with that. No, that is exactly what the Bible says is the root of sin. And see, the thing is, in our world today, that is not a popular thought. See, in our wider culture, it, it's absolutely the case, isn't it? The only person who gets to say who I am is me. I'm in charge of me. But the Bible says, no, no, that, that isn't actually true. You're, because you're not God. You didn't make you. God made you. And, and many of the things, you know, the so-called culture wars and the things that are getting discussed out there all the time in the world, in the media, social media, all the time, 
behind that is this kind of question is who is in charge of me who gets to say who I am is it me or is it the God who made me so as we come to this question of how it can be fair for God to choose some not others the first thing to ask ourselves is are we prepared to let God be God because that's who he is and we're not See, we tend to insist that everything has to make sense to us, even though we know our brains are limited and finite. And then we kind of refuse to engage with things that we can't completely understand and explain. Which, given that our brains are limited and finite, is an odd thing to do, isn't it? When we're talking about God who is not a finite creature like us, but a kind of infinite creator who made us. It's a bit of a problem, isn't it, if we limit what we will agree to, if you like, about God, just to the things that we can understand. The author, Tim Keller, puts it like this. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshipping an idealised version of yourself. Now, okay, having said that, we might still have big questions. And that is not a surprise... If God is God and we are not, and we are just creatures, we're going to have questions about who he is and how this works because he is God and we are not. But Paul is saying, with that in mind, from the outset, get things the right way around and remember, we are not God, God is God. Now, that then leads us to these questions that we have when we, when we think about this idea of God getting to choose what he does with his creatures, with those he's made... It raises questions like f- about free will, doesn't it? Maybe that's been the, you know, something in your mind over last week's sermon and then as you hear this. It's an important question. But it's a question that, that the Bible in the end says, look, both these things are true. God is completely in charge from beginning to end. We are completely responsible for our actions, just as we experience in everyday life. Now, technically, if you want to get technical, don't worry if you don't. If you want to get technical, this is called compatibilism. And it's worth saying these kind of knotty questions around free will aren't actually just a problem for Christians who believe in a sovereign God. Free will is a question that philosophers, whether or not they are Christians, struggle to explain in different ways. And I'd love to talk more about that another time, but that's not for now. But the the bigger point is whether in the end we are willing to say, God tells me that he's in charge, and God tells me that I'm responsible, totally responsible for my actions, and he is God and I am not, so will I trust him? Will I believe that what he has told me is true, or will I say, no, 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 unless I can completely explain it and have it all sussed out, I'm not having any of this. That is Paul's point to us. God is God. We are not God's. So, God is God. Secondly, then, God is good. God is good, verses 22 and 23. See, the the point now is that it's all very well saying God is God and he gets to do what he wants. But what if if he's like a tyrant? What if he's a despot? I mean, that's that's terrible. If he he just gets to choose and do whatever he likes, that, that sounds awful. And in our world today, we try and we, we're suspicious of power. We're suspicious of that kind of total power and authority. We don't want anyone to have that. 
And perhaps in particular, we struggle with the idea that God chooses some and not others because we then imagine the kind of potter sitting at the table making pots and going, okay, making a pot, here's one for heaven. Oh, okay, here's one for hell. And just kind of, you know, making this in this slightly sort of indifferent, oh, I'll do this, oh, this one heaven, this one hell. You know, just sort of getting on with it like that. And we really think, if that, if that, is, what, if that is who God is, is that honestly good? that God is like that? Would he really sit at the table making a pot that he knows he's going to destroy? And again, well, first, remember, he is the potter and we are not the potter. We are the pots that he's made. So he, get, he does get to say what he does with what he makes. But we also need to be really careful to notice how careful Paul is in the way that he expresses what this analogy about the potter means. Paul is really careful here. And one of the reasons we kind of slow down and we're just looking at these 10 verses is so that we just get a chance to see in these verses, which at first reading are quite startling, just how careful the language Paul has used is. And there are three little things to notice in verses 22 and 23. So just look, we just need to concentrate a little bit to look at this. Okay, verse 22, page 1136. What if God, although choosing to show his wrath and make his power known, bore with great patience the objects of his wrath prepared for destruction? The language here is very similar to verse 17 that we saw last week about God making his power known through someone whose heart is being hardened. In verse 17, that was Pharaoh as an example. And now verse 22, he's, he's broadening it out and pointing out that the shock with Pharaoh and with sinners generally is that God doesn't act in judgment straight away. That is the shock. He is patient with those that, that, that don't deserve any patience. Paul says something similar in his second letter. Uh, sorry, Peter, rather, says something similar in, in his second letter to Peter, chapter 3, verse 9. He says, God is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. So you might say then, well, okay, but what's the point of God waiting and being patient if he's already decided what is going to happen? But remember, the point is, we are still responsible. And his patience with us, from our perspective, only underlines our guilt. So remember, if you ask, if you ask Pharaoh, think of that, we saw this when we looked at Exodus, and you've got the plagues with Pharaoh, these ten plagues. So he gets, Pharaoh gets ten chances to repent and listen to God and go God's way. But remember, if you ask Pharaoh after day one of the plagues, do you want to go God's way and let his people go, or do you want to go your way? He will say, I want to go my way. If you ask him after day two, he'll still say, my way. If you ask him after day 10, he will still say, my way. So from his perspective, from Pharaoh's perspective, what is Pharaoh doing? Is, is Pharaoh doing kind of what God wants, but what Pharaoh doesn't want, and it's kind of against Pharaoh's will? No, Pharaoh is doing exactly what he wants. So in his, in his experience, he's not sitting there thinking, well, you know, I'd love to let God's people go if I could, but I just find that I can't. He, no, he, he's, no, this is absolutely his will. It's exactly what he wants. It's just the thing is, what we need to understand, is that what he wills is what God has 
willed. But from his perspective, he is doing what he wants. And so the point is, after ten plagues, after ten chances, Pharaoh's guilt and God's patience in just, you know, let's give him another chance to see if anything happens. No, Pharaoh is still wants what he wants. And in that sense, it's even clearer the more patient that God is. So that is one thing. God allows things to play out. But then uh, Paul goes further, says there's a deeper reason he is patient. Verse 23, he does this to make the riches of his glory known to the objects of his mercy. So the point is, the more we get to see his wrath, his right anger against sin, the more we realize his mercy and his grace are amazing. Because if we're trusting in Jesus, the thing is, if we're trusting in Jesus, we should be getting what Pharaoh gets. Because of our sin, because of the ways we turned our backs on God. But instead, if we're trusting in Jesus, we get something we do not deserve. We get his undeserved mercy. So in that sense, his judgment and his wrath, as we understand them, as we see them played out, and we think, oh, wow, look what I deserve. It serves the higher purpose of displaying God's mercy. So we go, wow, God's mercy is amazing because of how much I deserve his judgments. Now, it's sometimes said, you know, well, that's just scaring people, isn't it, into the kingdom. But it's more like the situation where a child is playing on a railway line and they've been told over and over again, don't go anywhere near the railway line. But they, they go anyway and they decide to play. And now there's a train coming. And, and that train that's coming is like God's wrath coming in judgment. And the child looks up and realizes they need to get out of the way. Are they being scared into action? Well, in, in one sense, yes, because there really is something they really do need to be rescued from. And that is the point, isn't it? The more you understand what you need to be rescued from, the more you are grateful when that rescue comes. If that is the reality of the situation that we're in, well, we need to know about it. And we need to realize how loving it is and how merciful it is for God to have stepped in and done something about it in Jesus now, that is not, again, these things are not popular ideas in the 21st century in our world today. And, and, the, and in one sense, these are not the only things we want to say about God either. There's lots of things the Bible says, but it's, it's not a bad thing if the news that we need saving from judgment wakes us up to trust in Christ. So that as we trust in him, we know that he died in our place and that Jesus took that judgment we deserve on himself. And, and maybe even today, that is something we need to just wake up to. God is God, we are not, we're the, the pots, and we've got this chance. We've been offered the opportunity to trust in Jesus and be saved. That is a real offer to us today. But you see, in terms of the argument and the answer to the question, Wrath and mercy are not equal here. Wrath is what we all deserve, but his patience is allowing that to become clear. And that helps us to marvel more at his mercy and not giving us what we deserve if we're trusting in Jesus. So when we're thinking about him, you know, with, 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 at the, the potter at the table, you know, just making the pots, one here, one there, it isn't quite like that. Wrath and mercy are not the same. 
everybody deserves wrath, in other words. All the pots that he's making deserve wrath. All the people that he's made because we turned our backs on him. And yet, the extraordinary thing is that he shows mercy to some. And there is one, one final little detail that we need to see, which I'm afraid, I'm afraid is about grammar. Okay, which I hope this doesn't bring back bad memories, past or present, of you know, English lessons or whatever. Or, or, but, but just notice how in verse 22, the objects of God's wrath are prepared for destruction. Now, do you know, do you know what this is? I'm sure we're all, we're all complete experts with this, I'm absolutely sure. It's the difference between passive and active. Okay? So they are prepared, that is passive. It's emphasizing what happens, but not who does it. And verse 23 at the end, it's different. You see this? Whom God prepared in advance for his glory. So even this idea of God, God the potter, who's totally in charge, totally sovereign, even this idea of him sovereignly creating a world that he is in charge of and what happens, the way that that is talked about is not symmetrical. And, uh, you know, Paul is clear, God is the potter, but he is in one, one step removed in some mysterious way that, again, we as creatures can't quite get our heads around, but it seems to be being pointed to here. He is, it's just a little bit of distance between God and the preparation for destruction. Now, he's totally in charge. We need to be clear about that. But it, maybe as an illustration of this, it's a bit like the book of Job. Okay, so it's in the book of Job, what happens is Satan tempts Job, and, and you know bad things happen to, to, to Job. That is the, is the struggle that Job goes through in the book. But what happens is God permits it. So God is, it's very clear God is the one who's totally in charge of everything. But Satan has to come to him and ask for permission. And we kind of go, what, how, how does this work? Why, why is that happening? Well, there's something there again about God, through the evil that happens, being able to show his mercy. And, and we kind of go, I, I don't understand that. I doesn't make, make, you know, if I were God, I'd do things differently. Well, maybe you would, but we're not God, and we've only got finite brains. And we don't get everything from God's perspective. And we're dealing with the deepest things here about God and his purposes but do you see that there's just even in the, in the little language that Paul uses he's just showing it's not quite as simple as saying well there's a potter who just goes one for heaven one for hell like it, just like there's a saying no it, it isn't like that when you put everything together and yet God is totally in charge that is absolutely clear it's like Ezekiel chapter 33, verse 11. As I live, says the Lord, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked. These are subtle things. And they warn us against making this over-simplistic or simplistic beyond whatever kind of simplicity Paul and, and the Bible have given us here. And if our response to this is just to say, I don't think that's good, and dismiss it out of hand, well, again, we need to ask ourselves, will we let God be God? And then more than that, will we acknowledge that in the end, the only standard of goodness that we have comes from God? I mean, that's an, impo that's an important thing as well, isn't it? So if we're asking him, we say, if our complaint is, God, you're not fair, well, 
Where do we get fairness from? We got it from him. He is the one that we know to be totally just and fair. We, we don't get it from somewhere. There isn't some other universal principle of justice. The Bible is really clear on that. Because otherwise that, that thing would be God, not the God who made the universe. No, he is the standard of justice. He gets to say, therefore, what is right and wrong. And if our kind of theories on what is right and wrong don't quite measure up to that, well, we probably need to listen to him as much as, as, as we can. So God is God, God is good, and then finally, and more briefly, just to see these final verses as he closes off this chapter, God is merciful. And again, this is really underlining the message of the whole chapter. Verse 24, he reintroduces the issue that he started with at the beginning of chapter 9. What he's been saying through all the chapter is God's plan hasn't failed. There is no plan B because not all the chosen people were chosen. And verse 23, the people to whom he's made the riches of his glory known includes, verse 24, if you look, people, yes, from among the Jews, some of them like Paul, the former Pharisee, but also it includes the people to whom he's made his glory known through saving them. It includes Gentiles. And the implication is, realize again how extraordinary God's mercy is. Even some of the descendants of Abraham weren't actually chosen. But you Gentiles got nothing to do with the plan of God historically. If you're trusting Jesus, you are chosen and you are part of the people. That is extraordinary mercy. And that is what these four quotes from the Old Testament emphasize. He has these two quotes first from Hosea. I will call them my people who are not my people. I will call her my loved one who is not my loved one. In the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people. There they will be called children of the living God. Back in Hosea, what that was talking about the northern kingdom who'd rejected God but would be brought back in. And now Paul is showing there is a further fulfillment of those words in even Gentiles being brought. You know, you'd never think a Gentile, a non-Jew, would be called a child of God. What a ridiculous thing to think. But the mercy of God has brought them in. And it's the same then with these two quotes from Isaiah. Much talk of uh, judgment, if you look in those verses. This is what God's people deserve for their rebellion against him. But the surprise again, verse 27, a remnant will be saved. Unless the Lord God Almighty had left us descendants, unless God had stepped into the mess that's going on, unless he'd acted to save in his mercy, verse 28, we would have been destroyed like the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah and Genesis. And as we saw last time, we see again, the shock is not that God chooses some and not others. The shock is that he chooses any at all. That is the message of these verses. I'd be very surprised if we don't still have questions after all of that. And as I said at the start, that is what the Q&A is for. And please do uh, submit any question that you like through that. Um, and, and don't hesitate to get in touch if you want to talk further about any of these things meanwhile as well. It's absolutely fine. But as we ponder and reflect and as we talk with one another, let's remember what Paul has shown us about God. God is God. So will we, will we demand that he does things our way or will we let God be God? God is good. He longs to display his glory in saving those who don't deserve it. And he does not take pleasure in the death of the wicked. God is merciful. The shock 
is that he shows mercy to any at all. So let's pray. Chapter 11 finishes with these words. The depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God, how unsearchable his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who, who has been his counselor? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? For from him and through him and for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. And so, Father, we marvel at you, at your infinite justice and mercy and power and love. And as these things come together, as we seek to understand deep things about who you are and how you've made the world and how you've made human beings within the world, we grapple with these things as your creatures. May that drive us most of all to seek you in order to know you more and more. Not so that we might kind of understand you and put you in a box, but so that we might marvel at you and your power, your love, your majesty, your goodness and mercy. Help us as your creatures to know that you are God, you are good, you are merciful. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.